Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach, using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tom Chi to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Tom is a founding partner in At One Ventures, a climate-focused VC fund investing in companies creating environmentally positive technologies. Before founding At One Ventures, Tom was a former head of experience and founding member of Google X, helped scale the company from 6 to 600 people. His engineering and business background, coupled with a passion for environmental sustainability, inspired him to start a VC fund dedicated to improving planetary health. Thank you very much, Tom, for joining me today on Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be on. Great, great. So you've, uh, you wear many hats and you've, you've done uh, many things in your career. Can you introduce yourself uh, to listeners, talk a little bit about uh, your background and what you do today, Tom? Sure. So um, my background, I'm formally trained in physics and electrical engineering with a focus in robotics and signal processing. I've been a lifelong inventor and technologist. And also spent a, a bunch of time in my career as a designer, product leader, uh, corporate executive, all that kind of thing. And um, I guess notably, I was one of the founding team members of Google X, which created the self-driving car, Google Glass, Project Moon, you know, a contact lens that can, also, uh, that can measure your glucose levels, a bunch of things. So pretty good at making really difficult tech work. And most recently, um, I created a venture firm called At One Ventures. So I'm the founder and managing partner of At One Ventures, whose goal is to work toward a world where humanity is a net positive to nature. Great. Uh, that's a, a great ambition, <laughs> Tom. Um, what's that mean? What, what does that mean in practice? How do you, uh, you turn that into action? How, how, how can you tell? What, what are some of the ways you evaluate propositions? Yeah, very, very simple. So um, you got to take something like nature, which, you know, could mean a lot of people, you know, uh, could mean a lot of things to a lot of people, depending on how they're thinking about it. And relative to making like a concrete uh, kind of framework that you can invest with, we kind of um, take nature and we break it out into air, water, soil, and biodiversity. And what's nice about those four categories is very clear when a thing is in a particular category. But what's also nice about those categories is it's really clear when we're making it worse and it's really clear when we're making it better. So, uh, you know, you can tell if you are polluting the air or you're destabilizing the composition of the atmosphere with, with too many, you know, uh, carbon emissions, methane emissions, nitrous oxide, you know, F gas emissions, then that's obviously not healthier. Uh, you know, with water, you know, you can tell when you're polluting the water or, or kind of breaking uh, hydrological cycles in a way that they are not able to recover then that's obviously damage as well. Uh, with soil, if you're burning down the topsoil instead of building it or sustaining it, then you're clearly doing damage. And with biodiversity, if you are extincting species or destroying habitat, then it's pretty clear what you're doing. So what's nice is you take something that's real kind of amorphous, like the, the word nature, 
And then you break it into these subcategories where it's really clear when things are getting better and worse. And then against that framework, then you, um, you go with the next level of inquiry, which is to say, all the industries that we have on the planet, what is the, the footprint that they have across those four things? And then that allows you to do kind of the Pareto analysis and then figure out exactly which industries effectively need to be destroyed. And there is a, you know, kind of a tongue-in-cheek way that we talk about our thesis beyond, you know, helping humanity to become a net positive nature is that we invest in disruptive deep tech with the potential to destroy the industries that destroy nature and uh, also invest in companies that, uh, in deep tech, where it has the potential to build the industries that will rebuild nature. Right. That's very interesting. Destroy, it's a strong word, isn't it? (laughs) Destroy is the correct word. And like the, and, and, you know, the analogy that I put out there is, um, 100, 150 years ago, whaling was one of the biggest industries on the planet. And we took these beings that we now know to be sentient. They have culture, they have language, they, uh, they name their young. Like it, we know these organisms to be very much like us, you know, in, in many, many ways. And we turn them into lamp oil and we turn them into lipstick and we killed, you know, 70 to 80% of all of them on the planet, including extincting some of them and driving other ones to like, 95% population reduction. It that's some Holocaust level action. And I'm never going to go and shed a tear that we destroyed the whaling industry. Right. Destroy is the right word for a lot of these industries I'm talking about. Yeah, it's very interesting. The way you think about this, I'm, I'm interested in exploring because I suppose uh the dreaded uh, term cost benefit. Um and 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 of course part of the issue is that the costs haven't the environmental costs haven't been borne by corporations largely. So the cost benefit analysis uh doesn't include those kind of considerations. But if you look at things in in, in uh, uh I guess break up the, the the analysis and you say, well, you know, is this causing some issues some in, in, in a particular area like water or something like that? Um and you say, well, it is, therefore, you know. Uh, it's not good. But yet, I, I guess, uh, traditionally, maybe sometimes we'd have looked at this and say, well, you know, it's not great, but actually the benefits are better, you know, and and, and there's a trade-off there. I, is there a different kind of logic that you're invoking here, Tom? So what we practically do is we find the disruptive deep tech, which brings much better unit economics and much better environmental economics, environmental outcomes. So it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, we got to be good to the planet and everybody's going to pay 10 times more in order to be good for the planet. Because honestly, those things do not end up destroying the industries you're trying to displace. The only thing that destroys those industries is better unit economics. And that's why you can't get there by small tweaks. The disruptive deep tech is not because it's just a fashionable word. It's in the process of fundamental invention. Then you have the ability to rewrite the unit economics. And in the rewriting of the unit economics, you, you basically are, you know, starting the process of rewriting industry. And like one analogy that I kind of um, share is, you know, right now I'm in Hawaii, but typically I'm in San Francisco and the place I live in in San Francisco was built in 1910. And if you go on the attic in, you know, my place in San Francisco, then you'll see that there's wiring up there and all the wiring in my attic has got cloth insulation because all the wiring in 1910 had cloth insulation, period. And if you scoot forward a couple of decades from 1910, then there's a, there's a period of many decades where all the wiring in the world had rubber insulation. And if you scoot forward to today, all the wiring in the world has plastic insulation. And, you know, like maybe a press, uh, 1% or something is not that. Yeah. And what happened? Well, it's a complete wipe of the materials and energy usage in that sector to a different way of doing it. But do you, do you remember the year that we shifted from cloth to, to rubber or the year that we moved from rubber to plastic? 
Not offhand, no. <laughs> right. In fact, nobody does. And the reason I asked you that question is it wasn't about consumer awareness, right? Like we have basically kind of, it's actually a cynical industry tactic to go say, we're going to go solve climate change by having all of you make better consumer decisions. Really what's important is the industrial defaults. And the industrial defaults didn't require millions of people to become aware of a problem. Like I would, I would posit that that change from cloth to rubber and from rubber to plastic involved less than a hundred people, you know, a couple of material scientists, you know, a couple, you know, supply chain and sourcing folks, a couple marketing people. It, it did not require many people to have a 100% change in the mass that was being used there. Now that's very interesting. And, and you know, it, it, it seems to be, there's a, you know, there's a paradigm there. You're talking about this disruptive deep tech. Um, and, and, and presumably there are many, many cases you can point to where just better technologies, uh, you know, uh, wins out. Um, uh, when you win at unit economics, then you, the whole industry has to change because they go out of business if they don't change. No, that, that's right. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and, and, and you're adding in the environmental factor of it. <laughs> Going back to a Pareto analysis, we face all kinds of environmental problems right now. We face, uh, you know, whether you look at it in terms of the uh, the, the, the Swedish Resilience Centre and the, the nine thresholds, just the, the, the issues of the commons in the climate change, uh, all kinds of issues. Now, when you take take this idea of disruptive deep tech, oh, from a Pareto perspective, what percentage of these problems do you think that disruptive deep tech can actually deal with? Um, I'm going to say north of 80%. Yeah, it's it's quite substantial. That's quite a figure. That's quite an extraordinary figure, Tom. Yeah. I mean, I can trace you through some of the numbers if you want. Like one of the biggest, yeah, if you, if you look at air, water, soil, biodiversity, turns out that water, soil, and biodiversity, the biggest, you know, uh, killer is the way that we do agriculture. So, and I'm very aware of different ways we can use disruptive deep tech in agriculture in order to grow in uh, with way fewer resources, like 95% less water, you know, 90% less nutrient input, uh, you know, one thirtieth or one fiftieth the land use. Like even just changing that would make huge impacts on air, you know, on um, on water, soil, and biodiversity. Now, when you get into air, then you get into the various industrial things. How do these scale? Because in, in in a particular situation, you know, as you say, you can reduce by 80% these 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 figures and so forth. But you know, globally, uh, in order to have an impact, it's going to have to uh, certainly hit the, the, the largest agricultural uh, economies in the world. And and how do you see that spreading? A, a, a particular scenario, a particular application, uh, cost-benefit uh, results, how does it spread? And, and what do you know about the speed and what it takes for a good idea, a disruptive idea in terms of disruptive detect, which, which, which changes the economics? How, how does that spread? Yeah, it actually spreads quite quickly. I mean, part of the reason that the green revolution that led to kind of our broken ag system of today, you know, spread was because of unit economics as well. And it spread quite quickly. You know, it went from uh, hardly existing to becoming the dominant form of agriculture in about 30 years. So um, we already have an example of disruptive deep tech, in this case, also disrupting the environment. But um, we already have a, a example of how superior unit economics basically led to a very rapid, you know, spread uh, across a diffuse sector like agriculture. Yes, yeah, so it, it, when you say unit economics, it's probably good if you tell us what, what, what that means. Unit economics means that you're able to grow healthy, delicious food you know, for less money. Uh, I, it's, it's kind of as simple as that. 
Right now, I mean, if you take, I mean, uh, presumably the fossil fuel industry, we see the prices, costs of renewable energy falling hugely, falling very dramatically. And yet when you listen to some of the uh, thinkers, the people who've been working in this area for, for a long time, for decades, they say it takes up to 50 years for these kind of changes to spread, you know, uh, in, in, in terms of new energy systems. You know, so you can see the, the, the falling costs, but they're not, they're not spreading, they're, they're not being taken up in any way near the kind of scale necessary for the kind of shift that we need. Yeah, so let's go break it down. So agriculture is quite different than that, in that every year in agriculture, you're growing a new crop. The, the thing about, you know, um, the old uh, kind of energy, you know, electricity generation and distribution systems is they're kind of heavy infrastructure. It's not like you redo it every year. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So like there are situations where you have this kind of um, capex inertia and you do need to understand that in situations where you have massive capex inertia, then it will take a little bit longer. But any um, any sort of system that has relatively robust cash flow or that has kind of a restart similar to agriculture, like on an annual basis, has the potential to change quite quickly. Right, right. And, and, and you know, a, a huge amount of the agricultural output in the world comes from smallholder farmers. That's you right. Know. More than more than half of the food. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Where does, you know, disruptive deep tech play there? Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting because like my parents were those types of farmers uh, in their childhood. So um, I would say a couple different things. One is that not everybody that is doing that type of farming for subsistence actually wants to be a farmer. That was certainly true of my parents. For sure. So yeah. like to the extent that you know um, you're able to go come up with uh, cheaper, faster, healthier ways of growing food, and some of it might be you know. Um, you know, more intensive growing, uh, but like uh, not in like the existing, you know, frame of heavy input intensive growing, because that actually ruins the unit economics of growing to go use the heavy inputs that we're doing right now. And it also leads to all sorts of poisoning, you know, through the, through the inputs that we're putting in there, the insecticides, the fungicides, the herbicides, like everything with a side in it means it kills something, right? So it's a poison to something. Um, but, but like there are ways of doing nutritious, low input, high intensity growing, which requires less labor. And we have a couple of those in our portfolio already. Um, so I, I know it to exist because I've seen it, I've eaten it, it's delicious and unit economics are way better. Yes. Now, like what I'll say is about a bunch of those farmers is a bunch of those farmers don't wanna be farmers. And um, yeah, that's an actual relatively easy shift when they're able to have any job other than being a farmer, they're happy to get out of it. Now, there are farmers in that mix that do want to be farmers, and then that's a, a more interesting discussion to have. Uh, but really, I kind of break up the ag sector into, um, you know, people kind of say, well, developed world, developing world, and then there's the smallholder farmers that grow more than half of the food for people. That, to me, is one segment. And then in the developed world, there's actually still uh, two important segments. One of them is the big commodity crop folks, and these are folks that might be managing 2,000 plus, but sometimes 10,000, 20,000 acres for a commodity crop like, you know, corn, wheat, soy, this kind of thing, canola, right? And um, then there is the specialty crop farmers, but these are the people that actually grow most of the food that we eat. So it's like the, like, you know, uh, onions and garlic and avocado and strawberries and what, like all these things are just classed under specialty crops. 
And those farms tend to be less than 2,000 acres. They might be 100 acres. They might be 500 acres. They might be 1,500 acres. It's rarely over 2,000 acres. And the management practices are quite different. So when you talk about disrupting the ag sector, you really need to treat all three of those segments differently. The small shareholder farmers will have different solutions than the folks that do specialty crops will have different solutions than the big commodity uh, crop farmers. And there's going to be some interesting disruption, especially on the big commodities side of, of things. Um, there's really going to be disruption in all three. But uh, I mean, we could literally spend three hours talking about agriculture if you want, um, if, you, if you really want to get into it. But uh, I'm going to pause there for a second. No, that, that's very interesting. Um, you use the word disruptive a lot. Um, and um, it's not always a good thing, is it, disruption? You know, and who's to say that, you know, industries that get disrupted don't end up with, you know, oligopolistic, monopolistic suppliers and, you know, not such good outcomes. You know, we know uh, the corporations, they, they like to it, maximize their profits. They like to grow. Uh, investors like that, too. Uh, corporations move in that direction over time. Uh, and that has a big impact on how things play out. Now, I know you're interested in social entrepreneurship, and that might be a way into just uh, talking about, you know, why you're interested in social entrepreneurship, where you think it fits in. But disruption of its own isn't necessarily a good thing, is it? Of course not. And basically, yeah, and capitalism, you know, on its own is not necessarily a good thing. Like all of these things are tools, right? And there is a moral imperative in how you decide to use your tools. Right. So a hammer is a tool and you can use a hammer to go build houses and create shelter for people. You can use a hammer to bash people's heads in. And there's like a moral decision there. So like when we talk about capitalism as a tool, we have used capitalism to bash a bunch of people's heads in, you know, um, metaphorically and sometimes literally. And um, we need to choose to use that tool differently because to me, capitalism is just a synonym for make sufficient and you can make terrible things efficient and you can make fantastic things efficient. So like in the premise of our firm is the intention of what we are trying to do with capital. You know, I recognize I'm critiquing capitalism and, you know, I'm a venture capitalist, like capital capitalism is basically in my job title, but like, it's really kind of like saying I'm a person that uses hammers and I'm making somewhat different decisions on how those hammers are used. Now, when you go into the, you know, like oligopoly, you know, or concentration of wealth sort of issues here, I think you know, um, uh, you know, big fan of of the 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 work of uh, you know Shosanna um, with the with the surveillance capital work and surveillance capitalism. And what I'll say about that is, when it comes to data systems, it's way easier to go and concentrate power. Uh, most of the things in our portfolio are basically pieces of hardware. They are kind of like hammers. Now they're hammers where the hammer is a robot. You know, there are hammers where the hammer is a new sort of production technology that happens in, you know, a piece of factory equipment. But these are way less likely to end up as a kind of a one player owns all the data and all the data equals all the power. It's like, well, I don't know, if you want a hammer, go buy hammer. Like, and basically the, the creation of this technology, as we create it, it basically becomes more possible and more affordable. It basically, it, it cannot help but lead to the democratization of these tools. So we absolutely do think about this. I will say that in our particular sector, because we do mostly hardware and physical things, that it's just a lot less likely to end up, um, yeah, the way that surveillance capitalism has ended up. Right, right. That's very interesting. 
Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about your company, uh, your, uh, uh, what kind of scale of capital have you got and, and what kind of uh, investments have you made recently? Yeah, so, um, so it's a VC firm and we are on our first fund right now. Our first fund is a $150 million fund that we have done about two thirds of our, well, actually more than that. We did 22 out of out of 28 to 30 of our initial placements for fund one. So we are almost done building out fund one. Um, our typical first investment is um, averages about 2 million on an entry valuation of 20 million or less. Um, but you know, it ranges like some things we put in less money on a lower valuation and some things we put in a little bit more on a higher valuation, but kind of with that as the center point. Right, and, and how many investments have you, would you have done? We've done 22 to date. Okay. Okay. And uh, are you an impact investor? Hmm. Well, I think no matter what you do in the world, it has an impact. So yeah. I think there is a, a question about what kind of impact you want to have in the world. I think for us, it's it's very out front. Like the mission of our firm is to help humanity become a net positive to nature. So if you consider that a form of impact, then sure. Um, I suppose everything is impact. I mean, I, I'm using it, I guess, in a rather particular way with the kind of trade-off between social and environmental uh, outcomes that certain investors, and though a lot less than one would necessarily think, are willing to say, listen, you know, we... Well, I've had better financial outcomes than most venture investors. So if the question is like, are, you know, do our LPs end up being way worse off financially because of this? The answer is no. I, I was more to do with the fact is, would you be willing to invest in a project that didn't have the kind of financial returns that you might be looking for because it had better social and environmental outcomes in that sense? The thing about our thesis is that it's actually relatively resistant to that, that case. I know that is actually the common case in impact investing. I did a lot of work in you know what people uh, would term kind of traditional impact investing. Yeah, yeah. But our particular thesis is quite resistant to that case because when you come with better unit economics, then, and you're going to displace an entire industry, then yeah, yeah. you actually are not having to trade off in that way. Can right. I imagine a situation where, you know, where you don't have better unit economics, but you have better social outcomes? Absolutely. That's not what this particular firm does, but I'm not against that type of work happening in the world. Like sometimes that is a great thing to happen. It's just not with this particular, that's not the thesis of our firm. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Very interesting. So, I mean, <clears throat> in terms of how does introducing the environmental element into the picture change things in the sense that, you know, I mean, Clayton Christensen's work and work and disruption in the computer industry and all that, uh, you know, history, all, all of that track record. Does introducing an environmental lens change the way the disruption operates? Well, you know, the actual core of why it's disruptive is a techno-economic disruption thesis. So actually it doesn't change it. You know, at the end of the day, like you can disrupt and disruption could also be understood to be a tool just like a hammer or capitalism. And you can choose to disrupt uh, consciously and pay attention to some of the potential neg negative, you know, environmental systemic effects you're creating. Or you can choose to not not to do that. You can use the tool in a yeah, amoral or immoral way. Um, so I don't think there's anything about like the disruption cycle that you know, is fundamentally changed by also caring about nature. Like that is just the nature of the tool there. But like we can choose to, and really part of the point of the firm is to let everybody know that you can choose to make moral choices as you do this. It actually doesn't harm anything else about techno-economic disruption. Yeah, very interesting. And and um, the in terms of 
technologies in terms of, I mean, you talk about being more of the hardware side of things, Tom, but what are a few areas or uh, what are even a few technologies that you think are exciting and have tremendous potential? People should just go to our website at oneventures.com because there's so many good things in there. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to just say, well, here's the one out of 22. Like literally everything in our portfolio executes the thesis of uh, better unit economics, you know, massively better for the planet as well. Um, so uh, that, that may be a, a cop-out answer, but if you have a more specific sub-question, I can dig into it a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, agriculture is a key area for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of our companies is called Ironox, and they basically do um, organic hydroponic, you know, uh, robotic agriculture. And what that ends up with is 95% less water usage, 90% less nutrient input, so massive savings on things. And when you look at, you know, the freshwater crisis, which people talk about a lot, 70% of of, uh, freshwater on the planet goes to agriculture. So if you could go reduce the amount of freshwater we're using for agriculture by 95%, that already instantly solves our water problem. But uh, without, you know, I can go into that for a way longer period as well, but we'll just leave it that for a second. But in addition to that, Ironox also is not using herbicides, fungicides, you know, insecticides. It's not applying any poisons to your thing. So like, there's no situation, like you don't even need to wash it really. I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't wash your food, wash your food, please. But like, you know, you don't need, like you wouldn't need to be washing this because we covered it with cancer causing substances, which is, the way that most agriculture is done. So, so now here's what's happening. When you go and look at the cost of outdoor growing, the unit economics of outdoor growing, 90% of the cost of outdoor growing comes to just three cost drivers. It's inputs, it's labor, it's transport, right? And on the input side, Ironox wins tremendously. You just heard like 95% less water, 90% less nutrient input, no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides. We're saving massively on that. On the labor side, we save massively because it's almost entirely robotic labor. And the robots are very, um, like the robots get to go and and work on every plant almost every day. So think about how healthy a plant would be if a farmer only needed to grow one plant, like with that much attention. Because like robotic labor is so inexpensive, then the amount of attention we can give toward uh, each plant in terms of like the plant husbandry, like the like caring for its growth is actually more than human labor. So like uh, we are both dramatically reducing the cost and we are actually getting better outcomes because you can do stuff with the IronX technology. So for example, it turns out you can take the same species, same variety of basil, and depending on the care routine, you can express the, the aromatic profile quite differently. You can have the aromatic oils be really bold and upfront, or you can have them really mild and mellow all throughout, but you know, kind of last throughout the, the, the um, you know, your tasting of it. And that is not a difference in variety or species. That's actually a care difference. Like if you apply your robotic labor differently, you can express all these different flavors out of the same organisms. And like what, what I would posit those not fully proven yet, but like everything that we've been doing leans in that direction is that the great majority of the crops that we grow are probably expressible the same way that wine grapes are expressible. So think about how those care differences in wine lead to very different outcomes. Well, that's one of those cases where the labor to plant ratio is quite high, right? And what Ironox allows is basically for the labor to plant ratio to be that high for any kind of food that we eat. So just the flavors that we can express through it and the cost of it is just tremendously better. So it's not going to be close. That's what I'm saying. Like the unit economics are much better because we've basically crashed the cost of the two largest cost drivers in, in outdoor production. 
That's fascinating. I never thought of the the, the range of different flavors and, uh, and and the impact of care that you, you now I, I presumably can can map out and analyze quite carefully if, if this is coming from a, some kind of computerized uh, analytical kind of framework. I suppose the question that would spring to mind is, you know, uh, these highly robotic and industrialized uh, agricultural processes. Uh, what does that mean for you know? For farmers, what does it mean for people who make their living on farms, and what does it mean for, uh, you know, you talk about the economics, uh, presumably of these uh, very uh, subtly nuanced uh, robotic systems, which which are uh, very responsive to to various criteria for the welfare of the, the plant and so forth. But with 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 you know, uh, farming is a hugely important uh, socioeconomic uh, activity. It's a you know uh, just economic activity in 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 huge parts of the world. So if you trace over the last couple hundred years, we have been in a very long trend of reducing the percentage of farmers in society. So I think this is not particularly new. Um, what I will also say is that, you know, in those three segments, the ones that are in the developed world, um, you know, like the, the, the big monocropping of the, of the commodity crops like soy and wheat and like a bunch of the specialty growing, the, the average age of farmers in the US is close to 60 years old. So these folks are maybe 10 years off from retirement, yes. you know, like on average. Now, of course, there are some younger farmers. Heck, there's older farmers, right? If that's the average, a bunch of them are older too. So they're, they're less than 10 years from retirement. And what I would say about these sorts of situations when you're running into a, well, what happens if this person loses their job type thing? Let's thank them for their service and let's pay them for the last 10 years of their life. Like why... Why, you know, th this is true of coal mining as well. There's only 50,000 coal mining jobs in the, in the U.S. And most of the coal mining job dis you know, disruption has come from the coal companies themselves. They used to take 200 people to go and mine out a mountaintop. And now with mountaintop removal, they do it with seven people. So like the coal industry destroyed most of the coal jobs. But that aside, it's like, let's say you got 50,000 people, you know, coal miners that might be out of jobs as we shift over. Let's just pay them for 20 years. It's fine. Like that is so much less expensive to society than dealing with the negative impacts that we're going to create for everybody by having this unsustainable energy infrastructure, unsustainable, you know, uh, you know, agriculture infrastructure. You know, my, my motto on this is take care of the people, fuck the industry. Like I, I could care less if we keep whaling around. In fact, let's destroy them. But like there are people there and take care of the people. Because the industry will, will tell you, it's like, oh, we need to go preserve this terrible industry because we're going to take care of the people. But then they don't anyhow. Like I said, the coal mining industry destroyed the coal mining jobs. They don't care about their people. They only care about their industry. And that's the reverse instinct. The right instinct is if the industry is damaging the planet, destroy it, but take care of the people. And it's way cheaper to just take care of the people than it is to prop up these industries. Oh, very, very interesting. Very interesting. And you have a particular interest in social entrepreneurship. What do you think it brings that's different from traditional capitalist modes? You know, the thing about entrepreneurship is, you know, I'm a scientist and that means like I care and, and an engineer. So I'm like, you know, uh, disciplined in thought in a couple different ways. But like when you're an entrepreneur, then you don't always have data on things, right? Like you don't have data about the thing that's not invented yet. You don't have data on how you're going to go crack into some market that you've never distributed into yet. And what that means is entrepreneurs need to have faith. And I know that's like a dirty word for people that are logical minded, like scientists and engineers, but like, I'm just going to say day to day, like I am around people that need to have faith and it's way easier to go have faith 
in things and stay resilient and stay with it in things that actually matter for the health of the planet and the health of your family, the health of your children, than it is to go have faith in some, you know, delusion of of grandeur around just getting rich from turning a buck or, you know, getting the next person to believe this or that. And I think, you know, there is a massive advantage to this type of entrepreneurship where you can have faith because it's deserved. Like you, you don't have faith just because somebody else got rich. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as you said, uh, entrepreneurship itself is inherently challenging. <laughs> it's a discipline of logic and faith. Yeah. And, but it's inherently challenging because, you know, it's, you, have, you don't have uh, a tradition. Normally, you don't have very significant uh, amount of resources. You know, uh, it, it can be in an area which is not well defined in terms of markets and so forth. But when, when you uh, look at social entrepreneurs, it's so much uh, more difficult. They're, they're, you know, operating traditional social entrepreneurship is, is so much more challenging, more complex uh, operating with you know no infrastructure uh, at the bottom of the pyramid with people with no money trying to solve social problems and so forth. Now you're focused more in technology, technology change, uh, and and you know high high uh, financial outcomes as well. I'm just wondering in terms of mindsets of the kinds of people that you've been investing in and supporting because I know you think about that a little bit. Uh, the, the the ways in which. Uh, uh, leadership in in small organizations and social entrepreneurship organizations, maybe have you some thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah, you know, I've worked with a lot of social entrepreneurs that are not in the high tech space, and my point about faith is still quite important. Which is, you can look at all of these things as disadvantages, but because you are working for things that fundamentally matter, then you will keep pushing in places where other investors, where other entrepreneurs would have folded, and. That is actually an advantage to that type of work. Now, you might say, well, there's these capital disadvantages and like it's way harder to get rich or attract you know, investment of this type or that type. Um, I think that is a thing that is not a permanent fixture of this type of work. You know, um, eventually somebody does make money in the thing. And as soon as it does, like all of a sudden, all these investors have revisionist history where they say like, well, I knew the whole time, right? So like, ahead and then suddenly there's a ton of capital that's available for the space. So like before like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat or whatever really started to get some serious top line revenue, then everybody in the space was like, no, this is just a niche thing. Why would you invest in plant-based proteins? This is just madness, blah, blah, blah. And the smart money was basically saying, no, 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 no. And as soon as one of them exited in an interesting way, then everybody's out there being like, oh, of course. I knew this was going to be a big space and that space has no problems with money now. Now, I think like uh, the social entrepreneurship, you know, aspect of things, some of those things are hard to crack, but as soon as, you know, a couple folks break through, then the capital environment changes tremendously for them. And that's how all entrepreneurship has always worked. So I, I think that there's actually some intrinsic advantages to social entrepreneurship because your faith is deserved and it allows you to stick with things for longer. And if you stick with things for longer, there's going to be some things that break through and that changes the capital, you know, attitudes around it very quickly. I don't think those to be permanent fixtures of, of, you know, this type of work at all. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I said I was going to ask a question at the beginning. I'm going to, have to put, ask you now and put it back into the beginning of the interview later. But um, so uh, we face 
myriad environmental uh, and indeed social problems, but environmental problems at the moment, uh, from climate change to uh, biodiversity loss, uh, you, you, you know very well. What in particular is on your mind the most? What worries you the most at the moment, Tom? You know, I'm actually way less worried that the planet warms and then it, you know, and then we eventually get on the other side of it and it cools down because that will eventually happen. Um, you know, there's real bad scenarios where it happens, like we could wipe ourselves out and the planet will go back to some homeostasis. And but I, I will just say that the planet will eventually cool itself again. It's we'll get there. But like, um, hopefully, we're still around for when that happens. But but uh, like, I'm a little less worried about like just the the planet in that regard. But what I what I am worried about is we are extincting a huge percentage of life on on Earth right now, and those are things that take a lot longer. You know, the planet can change its temperature over the course of a thousand years. It's happened before over ten thousand years for sure. But for like a bunch of the species that exist today that we are extincting right now, there are ones that will never you know, uh, re-evolve or nothing like it will ever re-evolve. And there will be others where for them to come back, like we're, we're on the brink of extincting coral reefs from the planet. And our best estimates that if we wipe them out, it's going to take 10 to 20 million years for them, for something like them to re-evolve. That's a real long time period. And, you know, like these temperature fluctuations, like I said, we can get back on the other side of it in a thousand years. Yeah. And I know that sounds crazy to even be talking about a thousand years, but like, look at the history of the earth there. Like, yeah. And I also think that we should be thinking about a thousand years as a species period. Like I, I try to do a lot of my thinking either in the immediate time frame, like what do I need to do today? But also in the thousand year time period where it's like, well, if I keep doing this and my organization keeps doing this, or if business keeps doing what it's doing like this for the next thousand years, what happens? I think it's actually quite, um, quite eye-opening to go think about a thousand years. And over the course of a thousand years, we can absolutely get the, get the atmosphere back to the right you know, balance of, of you know, the proportion of greenhouse gases. We can absolutely get the temperatures back to the right zone. But if we've extincted 80% of, of the species on the planet by then, that will take tens of millions of years to recover. And that's very concerning. And we're, to, to me, like what's happening with the biodiversity loss, it's like the it's like the library of Alexandria burning down every day because the number of species that we're losing and the solutions that they found to go live on this planet, you know, that they have encoded in their, in their genes and their behavior and their populations and their culture. Cause certainly there's organisms that are advanced enough that we could say that they have some form of culture. Like those are things that will be lost for tens of millions of years and sometimes forever. That's a, fascinating vision thinking of it the thousand years um i can't help but wonder where capitalism fits in where the uh, financial returns on the markets and so forth are, are are operating kind of quarterly rhythm and and and, and financial transactions driven by computers in in, in microseconds <clears throat> well the big thing that we messed up is we we call economics the dismal science but but economics is not a science it's a design discipline and we are sucking at the design process of economics so um, I can imagine a world where we just get better at the design discipline that is economics. Remember when we stop treating it like a science because it's not, you know, like the way that it works completely depends on how we designed it. In science, like you can, it, like science works the way that it does, like gravi gravity works the way that it does, even if there aren't people around, right? You know, like the laws of biology work the way that they work, even if there aren't people around. That's why they're so um, stable as we learn how various, you know, how a cell works or 
or you know how the the laws of physics work they're very stable economics is intrinsically unstable because it's a design discipline where we haven't done a good job of designing it so well, keep it's, on- it's interesting you say that tom because uh, for the, the wealthiest people in the world they say it's working quite fine thank you so the design criteria might not be the ones one might think they are you know the, the this growth you know the, there's been a period of this neoliberal economic model over the last 30 years, prioritization of markets. We've seen, you know, all kinds of uh, things going on with, with so-called capitalism. You know, it's, it's, it's crony capitalism, massive amounts of lobbying, massive concentration of wealth. So I suppose for some people, they'd say, well, actually, it's working pretty fine. Thank you. Well, the pe- same people that might be saying that are like looking at, you know, emergency climate shelters in New Zealand. And to me, that means that at some level, they know that it's not working well even if they have a super yacht that has a service yacht to go help their super yacht. Like um, I'm just saying that when you're looking for emergency shelters and like trying to figure out what security staff you can trust to hire for that, maybe things aren't going that well. And even the richest of the rich absolutely know that there's like a, a, a whole spate of like security shelters in various places in the world that have been built and they're all sold out and they're not cheap, you know, apartments. They, um, so, so, Look, like there's a way that they can say that everything's going well, but their their other behaviors like that basically belie that myth. It's it's clearly not going that well. But I suppose in order to leverage change, though, you know, they may they may say, well, we need our, you know, actually we need more money because it's going to cost me more money to secure me and my family and the next generation and so forth. So, you know, looking at levers of change. Um, when it comes to design of economic systems and forth, you know, if there's a status quo and tremendous wealth supporting particular structures, we see this in the fossil fuel industry, you know, doesn't give you great optimism for change. You know, the thing about these sorts of systems is that when things are intrinsically unstable, eventually they tip over. And when they tip over, then even though that's not the best case scenario, it's not like the the least people were damaged in the process of the tip over, like, you know, any system like with this, which is intrinsically unstable, is eventually going to get to a reset point. And I would prefer it not to be a hard reset point where we end up with you know, a billion or more climate refugees and hundreds of millions of unnecessary deaths and all that sort of thing. But we will get a reset point where we will get a chance to redesign the economy because, like I said, economy is a design discipline. And I hope it comes sooner. I hope it comes with less uh, you know, pain and bloodshed. And it may also happen that way. But like one thing that gives me, you know, um, some comfort is when you look at the history of colonialism. So yeah, like I, I went to this event in Oaxaca called the Carapulta a couple of times. So I got to spend some time in that part of the world. And the indigenous folks there, like people are like, oh, indigenous wisdom, there's all these things like, oh, let's, you know, elevate the indigenous folks, blah, blah. So very few people actually do that, but okay, like, Separate, separate thought here. The thing that impressed me is that they had been colonized and quote unquote conquered by the Spanish and you know whatever, today the Mexican government or whatever, but the people are still there. They're honestly gonna outlast all of this. Their food, their culture, everything is still there. And even if we completely mess up this economy and everything breaks apart and we need to redo the whole thing from scratch, I believe in the resilience of people that like we will still be here in some form and we're going to figure it out the second time the third time through and to the extent that we you know to whatever level we can we you we keep our local community strong 
then even if we need to hold out for a thousand years, right? Like, then that's what it'll take. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting that you're drawing the, the connection there uh, between, it's just it's like the time frame, I guess, is an important part of it as well. Um, you know, it, it uh, I don't know whether you saw the recent re- research on uh, in, in nature climate uh, science, which was uh, why relying on new technology won't save the planet. And it's basically a analysis of the way in which various technological proposals for responding to new to, to climate change whether it's nuclear fusion or giant carbon sucking machines that you know there's been waves and waves of of, of these kind of ideas targets models technologies and uh, their argument is that they have uh, fundamentally enabled delay you know that each kind of promise uh, downplays the sense of urgency and 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 it you know somehow uh, contrives or helps this a kind of deferral of political deadlines um you you've spent some time shall we say in, in silicon valley does that kind of does that speak to you does that worry you well it really depends on specifically what you're talking about so you know machines to go suck carbon out of the air are very disadvantaged from the physics standpoint like it's very unlikely that will work so something yeah. like that you know is absolutely a distraction Right. I, I suppose what their, their analysis says, well, you know, we had improved energy efficiency around the time of Rio. Then, then there was the uh, fuel switching and, and, and carbon capture, which has not manifested. Then, then later on, the bioenergy. And, you know, then we got global carbon budgeting. That You know, again and again, there are these waves of ideas, you know, that are... There's a real simple idea because we have successfully changed things in the past. So, you know, with the, with the Montreal Protocol, we actually did fix the hole in the ozone. Yeah, but that you could argue, you could argue there, Tom, that that was because of some social dynamics. They could literally get everybody in the room that was involved. And this is an important question, really. How important the technological solutions are compared to the social and political, the, you know, the polarization problems. What I was going to say about the Montreal Protocol is that it was actually way simpler than what people are saying. The basic principle is polluter pays. So all these carbon markets or whatever are not a polluter pay principle. That actually leads to complexity. It leads to different ways you can cheat the system. And we know a bunch of ways to to make it very difficult to cheat the system. And one simple way to not cheat the system is called polluter pays. We absolutely know how to design that policy. It's actually a simpler policy design than carbon markets. So why don't we just do the thing that works? I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah, no, it's you're right. It's it's you know talking to you, you 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 have a strong vision of the application in te- of technology of disruptive technology with uh, strong environmental priorities. That that in itself has tremendous potential. No, because a lot of the other times, I mean, this even happened at the last COP, right? Sixty percent of the people that had a seat inside were from the oil and gas industry. Like, imagine there was a conference called Save the Whales where everybody was from the whaling industry. This is like the farce we're in right now. Let's let's give it up. Destroy those industries. Don't in, don't even invite them. Yeah, there's a strong strong uh, call for that. It also reflects maybe to some degree how important these issues are becoming. That corporations were there in very strong evidence at, at the latest COP, which hasn't been the case before. As some degree, these issues become more crucial. They're very afraid of polluter pays. They very much want carbon you know, uh, a bunch of carbon credits and a carbon trading scheme where they're awarded credits based on, you know, historical pollution, which is effectively like 
paying off the the you know bad behaviors of the past and enriching them even more and not holding them to polluter pays right yeah no it's very interesting because you 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 have a tremendous uh concern about uh biodiversity and extinction and so forth and presumably you've come across the biodiversity offsets which we have to say is 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 the most uh is an oxymoron is it is no it it's just does not add up there's a bunch of things that can be financialized because they are intrinsically you know mutable fungible in that way and then there's things like biodiversity that cannot they there are things that are unique and sacred and i think like we need to make a distinction there too it's like the a design of an economy should not go and just it should not treat everything as if it can be financialized you know a simple example it's like imagine you've had the first child in your your family you guys are you know you're building out your family you you love your your first baby so much and they're 3 months old and somebody comes by and says how much that you would be you would be completely offended by that and for good reason because your baby and the building of your family is a sacred act to you there's like it cannot be financialized and a lot of what is happening for nature and biodiversity is the same it is actually perverse to go ask how much it's it's we're in the wrong frame here well like we've basically allowed the design rules of the economy to to um make a mess of these things that we know much better we know better i share that analogy to people they know better of course they're not going to sell their baby that's fucking crazy right like it's not even a question and like it's actually true of nature as well it's true of so many of the things that we have financialized are actually sacred and it's like okay well you can obviously understand the concept of sacredness like you're not selling your baby so like you must understand that concept it just you've chosen in your design discipline to treat some things that are sacred as if they're not so when people play dumb with me and say i don't understand it everything can be financialized True. you do understand yeah. the concept yeah. i showed you that you understand the concept in, in 10 seconds yeah 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 what's the mood in silicon valley with respect to the environment would you say a big question lots of different investor groups lots of different technology groups uh, lots and lots and lots of capital but um you we talked you talked a little bit about the the um purchase of new zealand havens and and all that kind of thing but do you see any other fundamental changes taking place people making the connection that it's 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 not about the individual it's social the sense of interdependency the sense of you know what's at stake here you know it's a mixed bag i think there are more entrepreneurs that are willing to go take on this fight so that changes the environment a uh, decent amount because what deals do you even get to look at right it depends on what the entrepreneurs make but um but i also think that there are firms that are wanting to do um some better work on this front you know with varying degrees of of success and capability so far but you know it's also early days so i i also expect a bunch of those firms to go learn and become better at this stuff and part of the reason that uh i don't know i come on to podcasts or like produce educational videos or whatever is that you know even if our firm is incredibly successful and we raise all the money we want and we and we like you know get all the returns we want blah 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 we're still going to represent a tiny fraction of 1% of all the capital deployed in the world and i see capital that's being wasted on direct air capture i see cap- capital that's being wasted on things that either won't work or will just damage the world more and it's like okay well let's just try to educate and um that's what you can do right now <laughs> and i will say that people like the things that i i teach so 
at least there's some pickup on that front. It would be quite different if I basically said, hey, this is this is not going to work or this will damage nature for these reasons. And everybody's like, get out of the room. I don't want to hear you. It's like, no, instead I'm keynoting events because I think people do want to know a bit better, you know, how to do this work. Yes. Yes. What's next for you, Tom? Well, we're going to be raising our second fund in 2022, which is going to be more than twice the size of the first fund. And I'm going to try to make a ton of educational videos. My whole team is going to actually, because they're all quite excellent in their own ways at different aspects of this work. Um, And we're just going to try to share as much as we can about what it takes to go and get on the other side of this. And I think also the, the message of let's aim for what we want. We want to be the civilization that is a net positive to nature. We want, because it's both what we deserve and what nature deserves. And it's the only state where we actually last for any significant amount of time. Even if civilization was only 0.1% negative to nature per year, we would extinct ourselves in a thousand years, right? So like, we can't even be a little bit bad. Like people don't understand that right now because we're so bad, but it's like, no, no, no. In the long run, we can't even be a little bit net negative to nature. Like we actually need to be a net positive to nature just to exist as a civilization for the next thousand years. So what I'm talking about is, is the thought process that we'll eventually have to win if we still stay here at all. Where do we find out more about your work, Tom? Yeah, you can uh, go to at oneventures.com, A-T-O-N-E-Ventures.com. And you can also go and find out more about you know, my stuff and watch some of my talks uh, at tomchi.com, T-O-M-C-H-I.com. And yeah, if you know folks that, well, a bunch of things, if you know companies that we should be looking at, if you know people that have some, you know, some deep technical skills, but also are good at venture that, you know, we're, we'll be hiring in 2022 as well. And also if you know investors that like want their capital to go to work like this, as opposed to um, <laughs> the many other options that they have, uh, including many options that uh, may not be lead to a planet that we can be on for very much longer. And they should reach out to us because capital can do a lot better. Like as a tool, capitalism can do a lot better as a tool. And we're, we hope to go and demonstrate that a bunch of times and teach everything we're learning, even the mistakes. Let's, let's teach it all. It's a great vision, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts, your, the world of work you've been doing. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation of an alternative worldview of connectedness weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism, and indigenous knowledge. It offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.